Hi everyone and welcome back. Today we're going to talk about an often underappreciated aspect of neural engineering, which is packaging and materials. Now, just by way of example, this is a pretty good phone. It's lasted me a couple of years, and I expect I could probably keep it for a few more years. But if I were to drop my phone in the ocean, it would last about 30 to 60 minutes. That's because it's really hard to run sophisticated electronics in a saltwater environment. You have to do a lot to protect them. That's exactly the challenge that BCI designers face when trying to build BCI as a medical device. I mean, it's really important to consider that the ideal number of neurosurgical procedures for anyone to undergo is zero, and the next best number is one. So, you know, if you think about the way people work with consumer electronics, like cell phones, we, we might upgrade our phone every one or two years. But when upgrading a brain-computer interface involves a neurosurgical procedure, you have to take a longer view on things. And that's why you really want brain-computer interfaces that can last in the harsh environment of the body for many years. One of the you know, macro challenges of building long-term brain implants is that the technologies to build next-generation brain-computer interfaces in the research lab come from the semiconductor industry. And many of them have not been designed, let alone proven, for use in a chronic saltwater environment. On the other hand, traditional medical device manufacturing hasn't changed very much in the last 20 years and really doesn't afford the kind of uh, capabilities that you would want in a high data rate brain computer interface. So how do we bring together the best of both worlds? And how do we know when a device is good enough? These are the kinds of questions I'm going to ask today of my guests. Lauren Reith, who's an associate professor at the Feinstein Institute, uh, Stuart Kogan, who is a professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, Thomas Stieglitz, who's a professor at the University of Freiburg, and Vanessa Tolosa, who is one of the founding members of Neuralink and now runs her own consulting practice in the area of neurotechnology. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. I also hope that if you have a little bit of time, you can click through some of the links and learn more about the material science of brain implants. The guests that I have on the program today are really top in their field, and the depth of their work is much more than I can showcase in just this podcast. So please, have a listen, and later, have a look. Thank you. To start off, it would be nice if everyone could give a brief introduction uh, to the audience, uh, introduce yourself, and and tell them a little about uh, you know where you are now. Okay, I'll go first then, Matt. Okay, so so my name is Stuart Cogan. I'm a professor of uh, biomedical engineering at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, I've been there for six or seven years now, and I came to uh, <clears throat> academia from the private sector. I worked for a small company for about thirty-three years before uh, coming to uh, to UTD. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in neural interfaces and I spend a lot of time thinking and doing research on how to electrically interface two 
neural tissue in a way that uh, allows us to stimulate and record that tissue uh, without damaging electrodes and also, of course, uh, without damaging. So I'm Vanessa Tolosa. I've been working in neurotech field for about 10 years. I started as a postdoc at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in a small group that was run by Sapnu working on flexible polymer devices mostly. And then we also were doing a lot of packaging uh, for that technology. Uh, I was there for almost seven years and then um, helped start Neuralink three years ago. And uh, so that was, I figured, you know, if you're living in the San Francisco Bay Area, you got to try out the startup life at least once. And this was one I couldn't turn down. So I did that for about three years and uh, left earlier this year and am now consulting for several neurotech startups. Okay, I can go next. Uh, my name is Lauren Reith. I'm uh, associate professor in the Institute for Bioelectronic Medicine at the Feinstein Institute of Research. I've been working on neural interface technologies for a little over 15 years. Uh, started out, uh, moved from uh, background research in solar cells and thin film materials and uh, analysis. And then uh, Utah corrupted me with the uh, Utah electrode array. There was so many interesting problems with the device that uh, could do a lot of fun experiments with it. And so spent the next uh, several years, more than 10 years, uh, working and continuing to work on developing the Utah array as a penetrating electrode um, array for both central and peripheral targets. And then at the Feinstein Institute, been working really hard on some polyimid electrodes. So combining a lot of the materials I developed, iridium oxide and, and such for the uh, Utah array and combining that with polyimid electrodes to go after like mice models of uh, vagus nerve uh, stimulation and the whole sort of greater field of bioelectronic medicine, trying to treat diseases by modulating the autonomic nervous system. Yeah, I'm the last one in the row. My name is Thomas Stieglitz. I'm professor for biomedical microtechnology at the University of Freiburg in Freiburg. That's a medieval city in Germany. And I'm working since 1993 on polyimid-based neural interfaces and synchron technology and did some, well, some detours in implant packaging and manufacturing. And my goal is uh, to make all those neural implants long-term stable and to minimize the uh, material tissue reaction in both sides that uh, the body neither eats up the implant nor uh, the body walls out the implant that both sides uh, like to play with each other. Thank you. Uh, before we start getting into the hard-hitting materials and uh, packaging questions, I think for a lot of early researchers and just people who are early in their career in general, one of the most terrifying things is to have to give a talk or have to do some kind of public speaking. And I was, in the spirit of normalizing failure, I, I was curious, do any of you have a story about a bad talk that you gave early in your careers or uh, a kind of moment of public embarrassment that you would want to share? I can share um, my experience when I was for the first time on an international stage on one of those famous NIH neuroprosthesis meetings. Uh, I was standing there in front of my poster. It was not talk, it was just the poster. And Jerry Lope came by and the older ones of you might might know the attitude of Jerry Lope. And he, he stopped at my poster, looked at me, started to smile and said, Hey, young chap, I did that 20 years ago and it will never work. And, <laughs> and then he went, 
and then he went on sharing his wisdom with the others. <laughs> you know, I, I don't recall in a single instance where I, I felt sort of embarrassed and awkward in, in a presentation. But I do have a Jerry Loeb story, <laughs> although that is uh, maybe a, uh, a, a digression to the neural prosthesis program. But very briefly, um, this must have been about 1992, right? So Jerry Loeb is there giving, uh, no, is it Jerry Loeb? No, it's Phil Troik giving a, a presentation and uh, on um, wireless telemetry. And Jerry Loeb just got up and laid into him, and Troik laid into him back, and they were working on the same program. They were colleagues on the same ground. <laughs> so that's perhaps one of the more remarkable things that uh, <laughs> that I've seen, at least at NIH workshops. I hope one day, Stuart, I, I can say that I don't get nervous. I still get nervous at every single talk I give, even though uh, at Livermore, I think I gave the most talks of the team. I, I keep volunteering for them because they scare me so much so i feel like mm -hmm. one day if i do it enough i'm going to stop getting so nervous but yeah. uh, it still happens in fact my last one my last so mine were recent mine weren't that long ago <laughs> my last one uh my last talk at livermore was at a nans conference first first time i went there you know, big conference and i was like i'm gonna go out with a bang it hadn't been announced yet that i was leaving for the startup and first to, within the first two slides, I realized that they had put my draft slides up and uh, it just kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> I, I looked really stiff, um, mm -hmm. people were kind, but <laughs> yeah, it's still. Yeah. Given, yeah, I've given plenty of incomprehensible and disorganized classroom lectures in the last five years. Yeah, and I think for me sometimes too, when you're giving uh, topics outside your field a little bit. So at Feinstein, I'm obviously surrounded by a lot of people that are much more interested in molecular medicine and uh, have no idea what engineering is. And so <laughs> trying to keep that audience engaged is uh, always a fight and always sort of trying to be prepared. But like Vanessa, I also have a big struggle with um, feeling nervous about some things. The more it is in your core area and the more comfortable you get with that material, then that, that helps, but still. Uh, doesn't doesn't take much to perturb the uh, uh, ruffle the waters for me anyway. I since I've asked all of you to share an embarrassing story, I'll, I'll share one as well. I remember when I was uh, doing my postdoc with Nick Malosh at Stanford, he asked me to sit in for him at an American Chemistry Society meeting in San Francisco, and I'm not a chemist. I didn't think anyone would be interested in what I was doing, and I didn't really care what they thought of what I was doing. And so in my hubris, I underprepared for the talk. And when I arrived in the room, which was only a group of about 20 people, I saw standing in front of me the kind of hard hitters from my field. I was working in uh, nanobioelectronics and I saw Hong Kun Park and Charlie Lieber and Bin Shao Shui and uh, Jacob Robinson, all people that I see at all conferences. And I, I had these kind of sweeping statements in the beginning of my talk about how I didn't think the field was going in the, the right direction. And, and I found myself just paralyzed with fear as I realized that many of their own papers were cited <laughs> up there <laughs> in that talk and that I was, uh, I was wholly unprepared to give it. So yeah. Did for, they give you a hard time? Or? No, you know, I was, I was trembling like a leaf 
And uh, they, they were also gracious to me. They Particularly, I remember uh, Bin Shao kind of uh, taking me aside and being like, oh, don't worry about it. It happens to all of us. Yeah, so I think I think most people have had some some form of that experience in their early career. Okay, since you're all experts in uh, the material science of neural implants, let's let's kind of start digging into it. Maybe just to frame the problem initially uh, for the audience, can we talk a little bit generally about the challenges of putting active electronics into the body? You know, what are the challenges that pacemakers, neuromodula uh, neuromodulatory devices, you know, existing uh, implantable electronics have been solving for the last decades. Well, who wants to I, I can definitely jump in. So uh, definitely uh, have a long love-hate relationship with packaging. And so, you know, they have obviously solved this problem on the uh, larger scale of devices for pacemakers and uh, now moving towards making smaller devices like the micros and the things like that. Um, but there are limitations to this sort of fully hermetic packaging that is the basis for all these technologies as you scale it smaller. Uh, and all these companies want uh, a technology that they can test. They want a testable product. That's actually one of the key factors that makes them use hermetic uh, encapsulation technologies. And as it gets smaller, it gets harder to drive helium inside the things and to be able to bomb test them. And so that is one of the limits. And then, um, and that's sort of a top-down approach. But a lot of us are trying things like bottom-up approaches where we want to use the amazing density of, of um, you know, integrated circuit technology to be able to better interface with neurons but the challenge is is that you know there's few things that that transistors hate more than salty water <laughs> and so trying to have uh a, you know and if you're trying to get to these microelectrode technologies where you're trying to keep the transistors as close to the neurons as possible that means that whatever materials you're using to protect the transistors from the body and the body from the transistors has to be thin and by its thinness means it has to have incredible biostability so that it um, does not get eroded over time. And that's been, uh, that's my encapsulation of some of the, of the big challenges. So some of the people listening today won't be familiar with the helium leak test and may not understand. Um, can, you, can someone explain a little bit about what it means to be a hermetic package? Um, how does that differ than just being sealed up? and? And how do people verify that with helium? Much earlier, and to say that the major challenge is that, that we, we have to put all the bioelectronics in a tank of salt water, that's the human body. And this is something that, that a lot of other disciplines want to avoid. You know, you, you give boundary conditions where you say, well, my, my TV screen at home works under the roof in dry environments. Um, and you throw it away after three years because you get a bigger one or larger one, you know? And, and this is something that is a boundary condition that is not spoken out very much. So we need a long time, especially if we go into humans for chronic application, that means for a lifetime. And in Western societies, we can predict the lifetime as engineers over the thumb as 100 years. So any experience with electronics that works for 100 years, right? And Therefore, we have to see that we put the electronics in a dry environment. 
And dry means that the electronics is already dry before we put them in a can. Otherwise, water that might be in there um, is, is somehow packed inside the can. And, and one option to do that is to put helium inside a can uh, to prevent any other gas to be there. And helium is not that much uh, present in, in our environment. And that means if we have a detector that can detect helium at small amounts, and we have a lot of helium inside a package, we can be sure or we predict that the helium comes outside the package. And this is an indicator um, that there is a hole. Um, the other way of arguing is not always correct. So, I mean, if you do not detect helium leaking out of the package, we have two options. The, the good assumption is uh, that the package is, is water and gas tight. The bad assumption is that it's already empty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I sort of maybe step back a little bit and, and address this question of hermetic, right? Because I think the word hermetic gets misused a little bit in, in, in this field as the terms of encapsulation, right? So hermetic means gas barrier, right? And and so gas barriers in uh, in, in uh, hermetic implantable devices, the so-called implantable pulse generators in this field, right? uh, they are cans typically with some empty space inside. And yes, they will be helium leak checked. And the idea is that if you can keep the gas out, you can keep water out and you keep the contents dry and, and so forth. But there is but there's also non-hermetic, and maybe non-hermetic encapsulation is uh, to understand that non-hermetic means that the encapsulation strategy really is not to have a, a coating that is necessarily, you know, and Lauren, I, I think we, we can go backwards and forwards on this too, but it's not necessarily a... Um, a gas barrier or not necessarily even impermeable to water right so for example we can take a silicones and silicones are um, excellent encapsulations for medical devices they can go directly on uh, on uh, integrated circuits uh, they can go around wire bonds and so on and silicone this is a silicone elastomer polymer that will hydrate in the body within a few hours right? but that hydrated polymer provides excellent long-term encapsulation of devices and that's uh, currently in some clinical devices uh, electronics are directly uh, encapsulated in silicone um, in, in, in our lab or in my lab, we encapsulate devices in silicone and use them long-term in the animal. This is encapsulating the graded circuits and so on. And, and in fact, all the way through to um, some clinical devices that, that we're now working on. But the, uh, but the point is that the silicone saturates with water where the protection happens is at the uh, interface between the silicone and whatever it's poured onto or what it's cured onto and it's all about bonding at that interface and making sure that you don't nucleate liquid at that interface and that can provide a remarkably good level of uh, encapsulation and uh, I'm uh, very optimistic for good old silicone that's been around for three decades providing us uh, quite a degree of uh, 
protection of implanted electronics. And then, on the other end, uh, is uh, are the very thin film uh, barrier layers, the, the silicon nitrides, the silicon oxides, the silicon carbides of this world, which we hope are good barriers to uh, the transport of water, but they are deposited directly onto um, the electronics or whatever it might be. And the problem with those guys is that there's no internal volume to determine whether or not they're good or not in terms of a, a coating. So, you know, where I was going to say, would it be would it be fair to summarize the traditional medical device approach to protecting electronics into kind of two camps? One being put it inside a package that is gas tight, and the other being clean the electronics very well and coat them in something like silicone that may be may not be hermetic but nonetheless prevents degradation would those would those be essentially the two strategies that are used now in in clinical implants well i i would say yes except that vastly the implanted pulse generator titanium or ceramic package is favored very few in fact i can only think of one neuromodulation device that actually uses silicone as an encapsulation. And I don't know if it's the same device that Thomas is thinking about. Which one are you thinking about? Um, I'm still thinking about the old UK uh, Brindley. Yeah, that's exactly right. The uh... we, we could go ahead. There are new ones. Uh, they probably explain the, the, the working mechanisms differently. But if we go, for example, in implantable pressure transducers for glaucoma monitoring, they end up in the same encapsulation strategy because they need to be transparent with the silicone rubber in artificial intraocular lenses and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But sometimes is the, the terminology is misleading and persons who are not that deeply involved come up with statements like they have a hermetic silicone rubber, which is completely nonsense. They have a well-adhering silicone <laughs> rubber yeah. that prevents water condensation. But those details um, are really um, hard to teach and hard to communicate. Mm -hmm. And so going with the, the strategy that's used by most medical devices now, the sort of metal or ceramic can with like macroscopic dimensions and you know millimeter plus thick walls one of the challenges of those types of devices is then getting signals in and out of them is could someone maybe comment a little bit about feed throughs and and the state of the technology for getting signals in and out of a package like that i just want to add a little bit on the silicone conversation with that so non-hermetic or near hermetic i the I think part of it too is showing, um, especially since there aren't a lot of traditional devices right now, like with the IPGs, showing the risk factor, the risk benefit also is going to be, uh, is one of the barriers, like you'll have to do more testing, but I'm hoping that as more of those results come out, that more people will be able to use them because it is about function. Like, is it working right now? I think a lot of people just automatically go to, we have to have a hermetic device, but if you take a stand back, like, do you? Is, is there really a risk for that? But we have to show that. Yeah. 
you know, Vanessa, we're, we're starting a clinical trial for an intracortical uh, vision prosthesis. So these would be wireless stimulators implanted in the occipital cortex. And they have uh, integrated circuit and wire bonds and metallization. Just, it's just silicone encapsulation, no more, no less. Uh, and so, of course, it's gone through all of the uh, preclinical safety testing. Um, but I, I just wanted to mention that in part because of something that Matt brought up, which was cleanliness, right? And I, I think that we can all agree that, you know, without, without exceptional cleanliness, the best laid plans of anybody's encapsulation are going to go out the window, right? And that's, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so, 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 so Vanessa, on, on the vision prosthesis, you know, fingers crossed, right? It's worked well in rat, it's worked well in dog, it's worked well in all the environmental and torture testing that we do. What is it going to do in a human, right? And, uh, you know, you lose sleep uh, over that because uh, you never know, you never know. I'm a big fan of not over-engineering, so it's nice <laughs> people can take a yeah, well, it is, yeah, well, it is it is simple, right? You just cast the silicone and you just cure it and uh, you're done. <laughs> That's all. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you wash it, you wash the parts a bit first, right? <laughs> but but honestly, you know, yeah, you're right. It's it's a little bit more difficult. There's some vacuum casting, and so if you want to get sophisticated, you may even do curing under pressure. Vacuum casting, do curing under pressure. But on balance, um, it's pretty pretty straightforward. I, I I do think you know for conventional IPGs or conventional plans, it's the it's the sort of tyranny of the uh, number of interconnects, right? And how to make all of these connections, especially since you guys are going to um, such a high channel count, right? So at UTD, you know, 16 electrodes, pretty good, <laughs> right? But you guys want 256 or even 10,000. And uh, that's where uh, it really, really, I mean, I, I think, you know, well, maybe you could figure out how to do an IPG with 10,000 connections, but it wouldn't be individual wires going through. It'd be something much more sophisticated. I think Matt is getting there. He's getting to the feed-throughs, but the part, and that used to keep me up at night, but now what keeps me up at night is actually the interconnect. Okay, I think there are enough feed-through technologies that I can rely on. I have no interconnect slash installation uh, technologies to rely on as we get to higher channel counts. Can you expand on that a little bit, Vanessa, just for... Uh, people who are listening to understand how, how what you mean by you know maybe you can tell people what a feed through is and then uh, explain the classic kind of uh, feed through technologies and then also how you would connect to a feed through like that. Yeah, so a classic um, feed through would be ceramic with platinum either pins or paste that's been co-fired in there as a conductor. So the purpose of the feed through is to connect the uh, electrode arrays that's going to be on one side to the electronics that are on the inside that have to be within the hermetic can that we've been talking about, this hermetic package. So that feed through is that um, middle layer making that connection. Once you have that, you still have to connect your electrodes to those um, feed throughs, each of those pads mm -hmm. on the feed throughs. And I, all of us here work on thin film technologies. And uh, so they get to higher densities as you get to higher densities, it's um, how are you bonding this? There's a lot of, uh, I think the two biggest um, challenges on this particular uh, component 
is that it has to be biocompatible because this is now on the part that uh, could be exposed to the body. And it has to be as, as, as hermetic as possible. So this is where it's not actually hermetic, it's near hermetic or non-hermetic, but the, the issue is you're, you can have shorts as, as liquids get in through. So as you get to higher channel counts, how do you insulate that as well? Bonding is one issue, finding the right materials and temperatures, but then insulating is the other. Thomas, you wanted to add? Yeah, I want just to add that, that, that people get probably a better idea what that means. The feed throughs are, are going inside outside and the challenge is that neighboring adjacent feed throughs should not should short circuit each other's. I mean, we take a lot of effort to put an insulator in between those, let's call it pins or lines. And, and then they are outside the package and we are in the salt water. And then it comes to our electrode arrays. And in the cardiac pacemaker, the beauty is that you have one wire. If you have a sophisticated one, you have two wires because you have a bipolar electrode. That means there's not much what you have to insulate uh, electrically against each other. But if we talk about 1000 channels, you could not, well, probably you can. I cannot imagine 1000 wires going in parallel or being twisted somehow and being insulated. Then, then it's really a solid post and no longer a flexible cable. And the challenge is if you go towards the micro towards the micro or nano world or call it whatever you like, that we have an array and this array should be should get connected to the package. And then we, we have also to insulate the pins on the electrode array. And normally they don't grow monolithically out of a rock or they are carved out of one piece, but there come two non-compatible technologies that you have to bring to each other, which is called the bonding. But then it's quite mm -hmm. often underestimated that you, you, you get them insulated at the connection part, that they mm -hmm. don't drown in salt water. Yeah, and, and I think this is one of the, the, the largest underestimated challenges. Mm -hmm. And you could say, for example, oh, we do it monolithically. But then it comes in cereals manufacturing, you know? Um, mm -hmm. One of the reasons that the whole world is not, is not uh, riding a Mercedes-Benz S-Class is the price, right? And if you want to manufacture um, approved medical devices, they should not be a million per piece. That if you would make them, for example, on the brain, 10 centimeters or, or four inch by four inch, right? And, and you would put them to the electronics monolithically, that would mean you would get five devices on a 300 millimeter microelectronics wafer where run costs, I don't know, I would say half a million US dollars. Um, then, then you can divide that by four to have the, just the net price without any testing, verification, approval, whatever. And so you have to make the chips small and manufacture them at high volumes and then bring them together with the cheaper parts of the story. And I think this is really the challenge to go from prototypes and first in humans, oh, it works, the principle is fine, to something uh, that is cost effective and efficient and that is affordable. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit and when the Utah Ray uh, started, uh, when the Utah crew started thinking about um, long-term implantation and packaging, you know, how did they approach this and 
what do they have now and, and what are some of the different avenues uh, that have been explored in terms of packaging the Utah Ray? Uh, yeah, so I can definitely uh, go into that. Um, just before I, I do, sorry, I'm gonna go back to the, the packaging uh, and IPG thing for just one second. And um, I just wanna emphasize that one of the important things with the helium leak test is not just that you have it, but um, as I understand it, companies test 100% of the devices. And that's actually really, really important. So I've talked to some people from these companies and it's like, well, it's not that we can't do the non-hermetic packaging. It's just, we can't test it and we can't sell a device that we can't test. Um, it was really important and, and I didn't really appreciate it for even a little while after that, that, that testing for it, like you can't inspect in quality in these things. And it's actually a kind of a, a fundamental challenge and so or maybe it's not and um and so you know if you get enough confidence in something then then those approaches are are um maybe more tractable but that was just it was um emphasized in in a way from that that sort of qa that you sort of had to be able to demonstrate that the package was going to survive and it's really hard to do without the sort of calvin and Hobbes. well how do you test a bridge you drive over the bridge until it fails and then you rebuild the bridge exactly like it was <laughs> Okay, so to the Utah Array side of things, uh, you know, we've tried a lot of different things. Uh, we, uh, myself, I'll speak for myself, uh, we, I was naive. I, I have definitely been uh, one of those people that calls silicones hermetic. This is our new hermetic encapsulation. It's perylene plus silicone. <laughs> And uh, eventually, eventually you learn. Maybe that's my embarrassing moment. I don't know. But for the Utah Ray, we have a tried um, two, two main approaches. One is to just try to connect it to a can um, and just uh, have enough basically ball seal connectors or some sort of ideas where we worked with some other partners to make uh, implantable versions of Omnetics connectors, which are uh, in hindsight probably pretty questionable. Um, but to hook it up to standard cans and, and just try to push it up. And so that was part of revolutionizing prosthetics, uh, I think phase one, uh, all the way back in sort of the 2003 uh, timeframe. And so, or no, to 2005. And, and that's running into what Vanessa was describing as the Utah Ray is man, you know, very manufacturable. The feed-throughs probably existed at the pitch that you needed, but the ability to bond them together uh, in a way that would interface it was it was hard so so at that time and this again this is is 15 years ago and so getting a standard can and working with the uh, technology partners we had and and we were trying to push up to like you know 96 feed throughs and at that time it was hard there's some stuff that that came out since then with uh, you know the brown and they have their large can and they had a, a kind of a, a polyimid interposer layer on the outside of it so that was another approach but for us, we were just using, trying to use off-the-shelf stuff because DARPA wanted things quickly uh, and that worked. And so we were trying for a low-risk technology. So that's one approach, just sort of trying to scale that. And that was pretty challenging. And then you had the whole wires in between, but that's another long story on the, on the Utah array side of things. The other approach that we did with um, the Fraunhofer Institute in, in Germany was to try to directly flip chip bond a uh, an ASIC on the back, and it's just it was a really fun 
uh, exciting approach, right? So you're using gold eutectic tin and, and the Fraunhofer folks could bump it on in really nice densities. And then you had basically one amplifier or stimulator cell per, per electrode uh, and got some nice results in terms of the integration. But uh, um, we ran out of time and money and, and, uh, and didn't have that guidance of Nick Donaldson's approach of making super clean surfaces and, and all the uh, great mojo that uh, Stuart has been able to pull together for, for his intercortical uh, device. So we just had um, a lot of uh, challenges with getting uh, a leakage and shorting and things of like that. So, so we got some, we took them through uh, uh, preclinical animal experiments, some of those things, but just always suffered reliability issues. And then in terms of the connections for it, so that, you know, the Utah Array has a, a relatively unique and interesting approach. It has problems that aren't well documented, but they use uh, insulated gold wires as wire bonds for it. And they have made a thousand channel version of this thing that's being used by a lab in, um, in, the, in Europe for, I believe, a, a visual prosthesis, or maybe it's, no, it's a motor prosthesis. Oh, but it's, it's a like visual a, one. It's a visual one. There's, there's a visual one too, but I is this one, okay, yes, yes. And so, so it's basically 10 Utah arrays attached to a larger pedestal. Uh, but it's a big pedestal and you're starting to have planarity issues. And then is a patient going to tolerate this really large plug on top of their head? And, and, and does it truly scale or have we done a heroic experiment to sort of show that we could and, and pat ourselves on the back? But it did, when you think about it, leverage that, you know, the cortex is, is spread out a little bit. And so it's not that we're trying to pack a thousand wires into one cable, which becomes a tree trunk. Um, but you can spread it into individual strands that you go in and then start to tile across. And so, you know, that gets you something, but it doesn't get you towards like the 10,000 channels or the 100,000 channels or the million channels that NSD was, was trying for. That's where you need those more directly interfaced, you know, again, like I said earlier, how do you get the electronics as close to the neurons as possible with as little in between as possible? What, do you remember the pitch of the, the thousand channel one with the gold wire bonds? I mean, so again, it was, it was um, uh, 10 arrays. It was just standard 400 micron pitch arrays. So the, you know, the Utah array, we've made the high density version as well. So you can scale it down to 200 microns. I don't know that we've ever, uh, in fact, I'm, I, I do know that we have never bonded 400 wires to a, uh, a high-density Utah array. We've always made smaller versions of it. But um, part of the stuff that I haven't published yet on the haptics program is the helical lead, and that actually made the leads just dramatically improved in terms of their mechanical characteristics, um, stretchy, softer, uh, and stuff like that. So there is, there's room to scale it. It's just not orders of magnitude. So if you're really going after that thousand or tens of thousands of channel device, then uh, you know these these tricks aren't going to get you there. So so that's that's kind of a good segue to um, some of the higher channel count devices that we're seeing now are based on uh, you know a totally different thread of technology development. We've been talking about extensions of existing medical device paradigms, but um, a lot of neural engineering now is coming from the semiconductor industry, building, uh, building things lithographically, building things uh, in thin films. And 
Vanessa, I mean, that is your expertise. Do you think that, can you give us a little bit of an overview of uh, what are some of the kind of Michigan style devices that are being made now? Um, what are the what are the materials that you can make these probes out of? And uh, thinking of the work that you did with Lauren Franks, uh, and, and and what are some of the limitations of the, of those approaches in the context of lasting a long time and connecting? So you're you're talking about the probes, but I'm still stuck on the interconnect. Cause that's, this is also <laughs> even to this question, like the <laughs> challenges are at that that interconnect, and we're starting. I had to, we had to move to microfab to do that because if you look at ceramics, like the tightest pitches they can really do is like three, under 400 microns, 375. Glass is becoming more popular and they can do about 180 microns. And that still wasn't enough um, when I needed to, we needed to go to a thousand plus. So this is where, actually Thomas already like described the whole thing in, in his, so I'm just gonna be repeating what you just said where, where the issues which is though we found a way to, so using in this, in this scenario, it's a flex polyamid probe. Um, and the inter, the problem, the answer to the interconnect problem is to get rid of the interconnect, you know, best connector is no connector. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, what, which as you mentioned, so what we did was uh, a monolithic uh, buildup starting from the feed through substrate. So we, we did that from scratch and then start to build the uh, array onto it, including um, additional adhesion layers and uh, barrier layers, which is okay for a specific type of company, but the real problem is the manufacturing and scaling up and how do you get other people to do something like this, especially when microfabrication facilities for under quality management doesn't really exist for most. I think that's a huge barrier, I think, for for Neurotech, even though in R&D, we're all moving to microfab. It doesn't leave our R and D because there isn't anything affordable for a company, especially a startup. Yeah, but also Thomas, I mean, you've done a lot of characterization of polyamide and perylene thin films, and it's not like those films don't last for a hundred years, um, even when they're processed correctly. So I, I don't know. Are we even if you build a monolithic uh, device with no connectors? Are we there yet? Do we even have the materials? Or is that still a, a basic research problem? I don't give a promise for 100 years. But I learned now that the technologies that we have, like cochlear implants, cardiac pacemakers, they would not last for 100 years either. So we are now coming with the cochlear implants at lifetimes where we see them fail. That means we, after after they really boomed and got a success story, we learn more about failure modes. And I, I believe the main challenge in thin films is that they are so thin. Let me, yeah, that, that's stupid, but that's given, <laughs> let me give let me give an example. If if you are in cochlear implants, for example, the metal there, let's say, is about hundred microns thick. And I believe it's thicker. So you really have a metal plate or a metal ring, which is really thin. And I, you don't want to do that by hand. This is really pain in the neck. But imagine you would have corrosion of, right? So that's something where you can work with, or, or it's still conductive. It still holds mechanically. But if you start with 200 nanometers, or let's start with really thick thin films of one micrometer, 
you cannot afford a lot of corrosion because then your whole electrode and and the cable that you have is gone and i think that's that's really one of the challenges and therefore i'm, I'm really skeptical also with insulation layers if people say we go below two microns of substrate at insulation layers you know we are manufacturing in a clean room and clean rooms are defined by the number and the size of dust particles and normally if you are in, in i take the old uh, the old terminology in a class 100 clean room you have less than 100 dust particles in a cubic foot uh, that have a diameter less than 50 micro or, or diameter of 50 microns. So that means if you would have an insulation layer of one micron and you would have a dust particle of two microns diameter and that friendly dust particle will sit on top of your wafer in the manufacturing process and then you cure at some hundreds of degrees centigrade your your insulation layer the dust particle will burn and will leave a hole behind and that hole is the entry part for water for salt and can if, if this is a voltage carrying line you can uh electrolyze water into gases and then it's like an explosion and this is something <laughs> that is completely underestimated to my impression when going smaller and smaller that you would need the thickness for two good reasons. One is to have it thicker than the dust particles in your manufacturing line. And the other is that you should remember that normally not the, the engineers or the neuroscientists implant those things, but medical doctors, surgeons, neurosurgeons. And if you are in the OR, you have to wear your rubber gloves and try it out, put on a pair or two pair of rubber gloves and try to handle a one or two micron thick polyimide foil or perylene foil, that, that doesn't work. So you need, you need to make those things surgeon proof. And that means you have to get the balance between the, 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 the least possible thickness for structural biocompatibility and the maximum thickness for robustness and reliability <laughs> in a moving environment. So I'm just going to add one thing to that um, uh, before I uh, have to drop off. So I, I totally agree with that. Honestly, I think it is um, that we don't have an answer to how thick it needs to be at this point in the game is, is a bit of a... Um, uh, a bit of a, a hole that needs to be filled still. And um, so the one thing that I was going to sort of plug here is the need for test structures. And so, uh, you know, going back to uh, maybe Nick Malosh, you know, so they, they just had their, their nano roots approach, right? And so here we have these very, very thin layers of polyimid. And so when I talked to him, I was like, so have you tested these with test structures? And he's like, what, what kind of test structures? I'm like, test structures where you don't open the encapsulation around the electrode site because anytime you open that electrode site you have a low impedance path how can you ever hope to electrically measure the characteristics and the leakage paths of your polyimid thread electrode uh, and how it changes over time when you have a, a short circuit that has six orders of magnitude lower impedance right next to it you just you can't you can't perform that measurement and so i think we have a real need for more test structures in my lab i call them 
I have two different kinds. I have electrode test structures and interdigitated electrode structures. They're just sort of two different styles that give you a little bit different ways to measure how the encapsulation is. But you need to have structures that measure how the encapsulation ages by itself and hopefully back that up with some physical characterization and chemical characterization to go with it, as well as the electrode sites and how those age and things like that. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, in, in, in support and amplification of what Thomas says is the reason that we're doing this is not only are we trying to take the size of these, let's say cochlear implant uh, electrodes, which are a certain size, we're trying to make them smaller, which is increasing the current density, increasing the impedance, which means that we have to drive them harder. We're going to higher voltages. So we're pissing them off, making our life harder, and now we have less than one micron of material to, to sacrifice. And so it's like, we're squeezing it from all sides and uh, Scotty is not happy. Oh, I've got to, I've got to Okay. okay. I, I am vastly more sanguine about thin films uh, than you. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't say I wasn't sanguine. I'm still doing it. So I haven't given up, but there are oh, big challenges. So, yeah, so, uh, no, no. And, and in fact, you know, um, what, what are we learning, right? So as the field or structures have been uh, studied over the last few years, one of the things we, we find is that you know, when we put very small things into the brain, we get very minimal adverse foreign body response, right? And we all agree foreign body response is a bad thing, blah, 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 blah. Now we've been talking about that for 20 years. But when you put things in that are really tiny, you, don't see, you, you must get a foreign body response but it doesn't seem to be particularly adverse response, right? So we are highly motivated to make devices that are really tiny that go in the brain to avoid foreign body response, right? And so then the question is, I mean, and, and that's that means only thing, I think only thin film devices of some kind is, is, is going to do that. So, you know, to, to all of your points, yeah, um, you do have problems with manufacturing. You do get dust particles. Actually, and it, not even in the clean room. It's just the dust particles you generate in the deposition systems, right? They're the real bogeyman there. But but the payoff can be very significant if you can learn to do that, right? And and so and and um, yeah, and and so so I have so much to say. But to your point about not being able to test uh, devices, I mean. You do have to have 100 percent, in my view, testing uh, going through. So you do have to have some strategy to test all of your devices that are non-hermetically encapsulated. And whether that means you know, saline soaking and stimulating for a little while before you package them up or whatever it might be, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But in, in any case, you know, in, in my experience with, um, with thin film structures, you can design them and make them so they can provide a really you know, remarkably good level of long-term protection of, uh, of devices. And it gets to be a different way of thinking about it because these devices are so small that your encapsulation is the device, right? Your encapsulation isn't on the device, it is the device. Uh, and then you have little metal wires or however you're going to make them, uh, or metal traces, I should say, this is not wire wire, um, in, in, inside the encapsulation. And by, by design, perhaps we can do very well here. So, so just to take the example 
of you know a good old University of Michigan probe, right? So they they've, they've been around since what 1985, 1990, and they have. Uh, a three-layer passivation, or at least they used to. You know, they have uh, silicon oxide, silicon nitride, silicon oxide. Yeah, we know that silicon oxide is rubbish as an encapsulation layer. Right? We know that silicon nitride dissolves rapidly in the body, but by, I, and I think it's totally fortuitous, or, or <laughs> it's serendipity that the silicon oxide, silicon nitride, silicon oxide trilayer structure, which is pretty thin, right? actually lasts pretty well. And what does is, what is pretty well mean in for the audience? Is that... Well, so, it's, yeah, all right. So what does pretty well mean? So, so pretty well, pretty well means that I'm not aware that university or, or that Michigan-style pro from a company like Neuronexus, for example, I'm not sure that they have any clinical use at this point, right? They do, they do very well for the lifetime of the rat in some people's hands. But also right. Michigan probes are, are kind of classically bad for long-term in vivo physiology. So they do, they do great for the two-day experiment that the graduate student does before they sacrifice the animal. But I think, I, I'm not really aware of Michigan probes being used for, you know, chronic non-human primate work. I, I think that they're not preferred. Sure. Then right, and and so, but I, I'm not actually talking about uh, Michigan probes as the probe themselves. Just talking about the passivation layer, right? Just the. Uh, um, I'm just suggesting, so, though, that the reason why you don't have those data points of material failure is because no one ever bothers to use them for very long. Yeah, although we have studied the long term, but I don't. We're going down a. The hole we don't need to here, but we have looked at the long-term stability of the sort of dialectics, and 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 they do pretty, they can do pretty well. I, I think Michigan probes fail for for other reasons, right? And they make an excellent uh, comparison point for new technology because you can pretty much expect them to fail over a fairly well-defined course of time. Um, but I, I just want to just re-emphasize how uh, enthusiastic I am for all thin film structures, right, that embody uh, vacuum deposited encapsulation, perhaps in, uh, combined with, you know, uh, maybe sort of the, the, the ceramic, uh, the oxide or the carbide dielectrics, maybe with a very thin polymer layer on them. Uh, but I just wanted to go back to the, uh, <coughs> to something that Vanessa said, right, which is that, you know, the best way to have a really good interconnect is not to need one, right? And so um, I think that where we're going here is uh, the electronics is shrinking and getting closer and closer to the electrode arrays, right? So we're very interested in wireless so that we don't have to have uh, transcranial wires and cables and sort of pack everything in as close as possible to the electrodes and then encapsulate that so we can get rid of the cable and get rid of the, the, the connectors and I think that's where we're going and I think that's how we're going to succeed when it comes to a very large number of electrodes right so that's that's my sanguine view of uh and I guess, sorry, my last thing, and then I really have to drop off, sorry, is 
is that I, I obviously I'm still working in thin films, so I uh, have not given up just identifying, I think, some challenges for the field. And then the only th uh, thing from my side is that long term is a really big change. So as part of the auditory nerve project now, I go and talk to Medell and they're like, I say long term, they're like, what does that mean? And you know, anything less than 10 years and even 10 years is like, um, that's like the bare minimum of something that they want to deal with. And I did have my eyes open. You know, I've seen what, what I've seen on the Haptics program and taking the Utah array from 1.5 months in the periphery to 17 months in the periphery and hoping that the next one will be longer. Um, there's, there's a lot going on there and those times are still really short. And, you know, in one of the uh, papers on the reactive aging, I showed a picture of the Utah Ray after three and a quarter years in a rat sci or a cat sciatic nerve. And so again, long-term has been something that's evolved for me in, in these discussions with companies, so especially for a cochlear implant where they're putting it in kids. And uh, we're, we're starting here. There's just a lot of things to, to, to figure out at that. and and even with accelerated aging tests to try to, to get a sense of that. We have these nice tools that have proven successful over time, the silicones and the platinum meridiums and the platinums. But a lot of other things have a ways to go to show that they can work. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's big challenges, but I think like Stuart says, getting things down close, avoiding that fibrotic response will all pay huge dividends. And so definitely, exciting to do and, and uh, fun to keep working on. It's been a really great conversation. I, uh, yeah, well. this has been fun. I really, uh, yeah, we should talk. Indeed. All right, all take care. I, I think with the thin films, one of the issues too, where I, I hear a lot of confusion on, does it work? Does it not work? I think part of the problem is we, people discuss it as just thin films rather than in relation to design or application. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I say when people ask me, well, does it last a long time? Or you know, does, is, what's the longevity or lifetime? Does it last? Well, it depends on the design. Like I will design a thin film probe based on the location of the body. I mean, you have to think about how is the thin, especially with uh, polymers, how is it, uh, how's it failing? Is it failing through the thickness? Is it failing through delamination, through um, ingress from the side of ions? Or is it failing from degradation of the material itself? For example, with the accelerated uh, aging with peroxide that was initially started um, through FDA with Pasha. The, the, the way I thought about that um, result was in combination with what Stuart was saying with the size of the probe, like, yeah, I think he was using 20 millimolar, millimolar peroxide, which is pretty high. But if you have a small, small probe, you're not gonna cause that kind of reaction. So it's not gonna degrade as fast as what that study showed. So you can't take, I, I guess the, point is you can't take like one result from one type of design and then say, this is how thin films are gonna, how they perform in all cases. Like, and same with, with stimulation. You have um, devices like DBS that are on all the time, 24 seven. So maybe some thin film designs won't survive that, but there are a lot of devices out there that are only on when the person is awake or in, you know, duty cycles are a lot lower and it could be used for that. So to just blanketly say that thin film can't work for long-term, I think really depends on the application and design. This is probably due to the case that most persons know the cardiac pacemaker, and it's obvious that a cardiac pacemaker has to work 24-7, right? Otherwise, you might get into trouble. And 
and and this is something how the field evolved you know it started from the cardiac pacemaker and then people fiddled around a little bit and, and stuck it into the brain the same technology more or less you know it's the, the ipg for for the deep brain stimulation is more or less the same than a cardiac pacemaker and the cochlear implant looks differently but from the technology is still very close to that and so I, I believe if we do not change that way of thinking people don't tell us we need a deep brain stimulator but with 10,000 electrodes no that's wrong I mean if, if you have to look from the application side say okay probably we need 100 electrodes here and 100 electrodes there and they have to talk to each other um, yeah, I think this is the beauty with the new technologies that we can think outside the box um, and get something new that we can use redundancy on purpose and not because uh, we are not able to make it smaller or larger or whatever, but we can really play with the physiological details, try to understand them and find the right, uh, as you said, Vanessa, the right design, the right combination of technologies and materials for that particular application. If we, if we talk about materials, um, you know, do we have some intuition for the lifetime of a perylene or a polyamide, say 10 micron film? Do we think that it's possible to push that out beyond 10 years? Or do we think that intrinsically these things let in too much water and degrade too quickly? Well, you know, that, that's a, a, a really hard question because actually how a polyimid fares and how a paraline fares, a little bit to Vanessa's point, is sort of depends who makes it and who puts it on the device. Right? It's so uh, dependent on uh, who's doing it. It's very dependent on the design of the device. It's very dependent on... On, on where the device is going in the body. My guess is if you put polyimid or paraline done well in some saline at 37 degrees Celsius, it'll last you know, for a very long time. Uh, put it in the body, you know, it's a different story, right? We, we, don't, we, don't, we, we don't really know. So, um, but <clears throat> one thing that uh, Lauren brought up, which I think is, uh, is critical here is, the only really good long-term test we have is putting it in an animal and seeing what happens over the course of a few years. And so we don't have, we can, we can do accelerated testing, uh, increase the temperature, we can add some peroxide or we can increase the temperature and add peroxide and, and, and so on. But it uh, doesn't really uh, give us a very satisfactory uh, way to predict uh, lifetime in the body, or, or at least not yet. And so, um, but then from a very fundamental material standpoint, I think you can look at, look at a material and you can look at its structure, look at its bonding and say, okay, this material is likely to last a long time, or this material is going to be susceptible to hydrolysis, or this material is going to be susceptible to stress cracking or, or, or whatever it might be. So while I am... I don't want to make this sound too simple, right? I think it is possible that we can come up with, and, and for, oh, I was going to say, that we can come up with encapsulations that last a long time. Well, actually, of course, we have polymer encapsulations that do last a long time. And getting to thin film encapsulation uh, that lasts a long time 
um, is challenging, uh, obviously, for, for a reason that we haven't really touched on yet. Besides, they're thin. They're thin. They can sus be susceptible to process defects. They have lousy coverage of surface topography. What we haven't talked about is stress and mechanical forces on these films. So if we're wiggling these things backwards and forwards in the body, then uh, we have a whole new... Uh, <coughs> failure mode uh, that we have to consider that really we doesn't crop up much with with uh, with polymers or maybe with paraline and polyimide in some applications but certainly not with with, with conventional clinical uh, clinical polymers so that's something that we are going to have to address and again I, I think that uh, <coughs> really to Vanessa's point about getting rid of things we don't want to use thin film encapsulation anywhere we don't have to. And we want to design from the get-go, if we are going to use thin film encapsulation, we want the design to start off with using thin film encapsulation in mind. We don't want to have a design and say, okay, we're going to take the polymer off and use thin film encapsulation, because that's never going to work. All right, so... Um, it is. Um, so that's really not answering your question, Matt, because I don't think it has an answer. But um, it is, um, again, it, there are a lot of challenges. There's no reason why we can't overcome those challenges. On our last, I was just going to say, on our last uh, podcast, we had uh, Cindy Chestick on, and we were talking about some kind of general challenges in BCI. Yeah. Now, it's if I was going to write a science fiction series where like suddenly one new technology turned up and changed everything, it would be the magic coating. Yeah. yeah. Right. That suddenly lets you make, you know, all of your medical devices can now be chip scale, right? Because you have the magic coating. And so it'd be great if we had it. I wonder if material science has been as fully engaged as they could be. Maybe it's out there somewhere. I don't know. So the magic coating would be something that you can put down at you know, micron thickness, or maybe a few few micron thickness at low temperature. So you could do it on active electronics or on a polymer substrate, and it would last as long as existing packaging technologies. Do you think that the magic coating exists? Do you think it's possible? First of all, I think that's on the wish list of a neuroscientist. Um, that, and what I mean with that is, that neuroscientists quite often approach the field from a way of, I think this would be good from the biological side. But if you want to sell that, that really a lot of patients could benefit from it. It's not from the wish list, it's from the side of, can I manufacture it? And do I get it through an approval procedure with a lot of validations? And from that point of view, I would say a magic coating would be so magic that would that I cannot imagine that I can convince an FDA officer or whatever officer worldwide in another approval system um, that this magic would hold true as universal coating for each and every place in the body under each and every mechanical and electrical load and disease case that I have. We should keep it in mind that most of the patients are not healthy, otherwise they would not need uh, a neural implant. And if I would need something, uh, probably there might be a different metabolic state there around and, and it must be stable. So a magic coating must be so magic that I can put it on the device in the clean room 
but it goes through washing validation and sterilization, uh, lies on the shelf for half a year when it's put in an airplane, is shipped um, over minus 40 degrees C at 30,000 feet height, stands two hours in Dubai for refueling, gets up in Australia out of, out of the case and still has that magic property where you put it on um, eight months before. And, and this is where I, as an engineer in translational research, are really, I doubt that, that I could find that yeah. magic coating. It's, it's probably to... to uh... mm -hmm. Well, t Thomas, you're obviously a very well-traveled man. <laughs> what can I say? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think um, there are coatings that are likely to do very, very well in certain applications and certain devices in certain ways um, whether there can be a fix all just talking about coatings that are barrier layers or encapsulation coatings can there be a coating that's a fix i'm not optimistic for that you know because i some people think that that's silicon carbide well okay so now that you bring up silicon carbide i don't want to be self I yeah, I, I, I don't want to be self-serving uh, because we use silicon carbide, of course, all the time, and I'm highly invested in it. Um, I mean, silicon carbide is extremely stable in the body. It's uh, very adaptable to thin film processing, and we've had it in animals for long periods of time. But, um, you know, it comes with limitations, right? And so um, you've got to put these, if you have a lot of surface topography, coding things that have a lot of surface topography is very challenging. So if you ask me, can I take silicon carbide and put it over uh, a wire bonded ASIC, I would say, well, you're pressing, you know, you're pushing your luck there, right? Um, so, but on, on some thin film structures, um, sure. I mean, I, I think it can be, be great. And again, to the point that I think we've been making, um, you know, you can't use something like silicon carbide in a device design that was intended to be encapsulated with a silicone, right? That's it's just completely different, right? So um, I really, really like silicon carbide, Matt. I, I think it's going to find its way certainly into the clinic, but I think it's going to have a fairly well-defined range of applications and uses in these devices and it's definitely not a uh, a panacea for encounter are, are you familiar with the um neuropixel device are all of you familiar with that coming out of genelia farm what well, we could we we could uh discuss if it really comes out of genelia farm or the most of the technology imec yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that I, I should have mentioned all colla uh, collaborators there my European centric view. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think a coating exists to seal an active Michigan probe uh, like the Neuropixel, seal it away and, and be a, an effective barrier for 10 years? Something that could be applied on, on CMOS um, at low enough temperature that you don't, uh, you don't cause problems for the active electronics and something that could be thin enough that it wouldn't substantially uh, change the geometry of a probe like that because i think that's a that, that's where the field feels like it's going but it, it does certainly seem like the barrier is the remaining question well i i believe the the intention of 
the neural pixel probe is to gain knowledge of the structure and the communication in the brain in, in neurosciences. And as far as I, I, I've seen the presentations on that probe, it was not on longevity of five or 10 years. Oh, no. That's not what they're claiming. That's exactly what they're building it for. But and and that that means so if you have like like Stuart said that that old style coating and probably a little bit more, might it now be one of those atomic layer depositions where where a lot of promises are made or a combination of silicon low temperature silicon carbide which is not as good as high temperature silicon carbide from from the material properties. I think the truth will be a combination of very thin materials that um, help to fulfill the intended use. And this is the point where we have to jump back, I guess, to one of the first questions. What is the intended use? Should it work for a day, a week, a month? Should it be in non-human primates for a year? Um, and then we have to find out what happens if. So the beauty of small devices is that they have a small amount of material, so it's not that toxic because it's not that much, right? So it's probably not toxic. And the second question is, how does it fail? If you have 10,000 electrode sites and three of them fail, you still have more than 9,000 and you can proceed with your experiments, right? And, and therefore, I mean, it's, it's really, what is that good for? If you say I go in with 10,000 electrodes because I need five of them, and I'm pretty sure whatever five I select out of 300, they're good enough. There are some statements of the BCI community that doesn't matter that much if you're 10 microns above or below, if you can train a person to, to, to use a certain signal for, for driving an assistive device, then you have that redundancy or that plasticity inside the brain. This is different from the question if you want to, to map the whole brain with thousands of, of, of single uh, sites to see how the signals interact with each other if you have a certain phase dependency or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, I, I would believe that we will see different solutions uh, depending on the intended use. Vanessa, I'm curious to get your take on this because you've been very invested in building, you know, higher channel count thin film devices that are are looking at long term use. Um, where where do you see things going, and and what are you optimistic about? Well, for the specifically on the silicon devices, I guess I'm not aware of anything that's gone pretty far for deep targets. So I I just think that. I don't really think about the silicon too much except for the, the science, even though a lot of BCI work is in cortex, you know, like in paradigmics. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I, I always think about flexible polymers in that sense for longer term, deeper targets, which I, I know I, I sound like a broken record now, but it's like, to me, I don't care about a magic coding. I care about a magic interconnect because when I work with flexible probes, it's always how do I then bond, bond it? Whereas for the neuropixel, they're able to just build it all, all up mm -hmm. off of a silicon wafer. And it's really nice. You could do wafer level. So do you think if you had the magic interconnect that you're you're comfortable right now with the longevity of polyamide structures, it just intrinsically? 
No. So, th- so there, well, it's just, that's the first place I think that I'm hitting a wall where I see I'm get farther with the probe, but then on the probe side, um, polyimide alone, I think based on, if you can, depending what the application is, you can design it to last a long time. For example, one of the failure modes is coming from, from the edge of these devices, the ions and uh, moisture migration. If you increase that path, you've increased your lifetime. What is the lifetime you're going after? Is it one year, is it five, is it 20? So that's just one design, low hanging fruit design change. Of course, with these, these brain probes, you wanna go as small as possible. There, I stand on actually these two guys. <laughs> they're, they have really uh, affected my thinking on uh, how to, the, the path to a longer life um, polymer, polyamide based device. And I mean, it, I mean, silicon carbide is a big one that's uh, in my head. And, and again, it's thanks to Stuart and Thomas work that makes me think that we haven't really shown what that can do, that it can last, how, lo- how long it can last. We have, um, it's unpublished work, but at, at Livermore, a lot of the work we did was on reliability of poly, polyimide on polyimide. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've seen some things that make me believe even polyimide alone can last a pretty long time, but the conditions under which you have to manufacture are so tight that it's hard for me to imagine that and in the near term for any company. I so I think wanting to needing an additional layer, which again is also a manufacturing issue. Carbide isn't that easy um, to, to get to with the device or, or the, the tool and a specialty of manufacturing that at a high volume. What about um, when we talk about ceramic films? I have a clip from Tim Harris here that I'll play. Do you need single crystal films or can you plausibly argue that a thin polycrystalline film can be truly impenetrant for the year's time scale at body temperatures? All right, so you, know, you go from single crystal to amorphous, right? And, and, and in between is polycrystal and, and polycrystal, um, we say it's rubbish because of all the grain boundaries and transport down the grain boundaries and so on. But, but an amorphous material, which can last a very long time, it's sort of all grain boundary, right? So um, I, I, I think the answer is no, it, it doesn't need to be. Um, it, and in fact, I mean, maybe silicon carbide is an example, but a uh, silicon carbide, sorry, silicon oxide. But I mean, I don't think it has to be single crystal. I mean, I think polycrystalline, if, if done right, can be, um, uh, can, can be very good. And I'm not sure quite why, right? Why? Why polycrystalline silicon dioxide doesn't work all that well is probably as much due to silicon dioxide as it is due to the grain boundaries. And so I'm, yeah, so, so, so no, I, the, the, the short answer is I don't think it has to be um, single. Single crystal or is it polycrystalline or amorphous, but rather what are the deposition conditions? So what other agents do I have mm-hmm. in there? If I have a lot of point defects with, let's say, rubbish like hydrogen, right? Mm-hmm. And it might, exchange, might exchange. And then it's not that, that the material itself is bad. The silicon dioxide is, is still fine, but all the other material has gone. I and leaves open spaces there. Um, that's the same with atomic layer deposition. Aluminum oxide, so alumina, is, is a material that's beautiful, but if you deposit that in a single layer, and this is not homogeneous, and you have a lot of crap in between, then it's eaten up by the water immediately when it gets mm-hmm. in contact. And that does not mean that the material 
is not good. But um, you know, normally in, in, in normal conversations, if you say something like point defects, people don't do no longer listen to you because you sound too too technical, right? And uh, that means it's again all about manufacturing. But the promises of atomic layer deposition that a lot of nanotechnologies work on on the basic mechanisms. That means they um, I'm now a little bit overstretching, but they 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 publish when they see three nano rods, and we want to work on wafer scale or at least on device scale. That means we, we have to deposit area sites that are far above what's done in fundamental nanoscience. And this transition is really painful and the machines are very expensive. And in, in most labs, too many persons playing around on a single machine and don't tell the others what they're using and, and don't clean up the machine as properly as it should be. And therefore, the, the reliability of those layers is not as good as it would be if this machine would stand in a class one clean room um, to manufacture gazillions of microchips per year. It sounds like something that all three of you have been emphasizing is, you know, the material itself isn't necessarily the determining factor, but rather the process conditions uh, for depositing that material seem to be so critical. Um, that seems that's the very thing that often isn't shared between labs or between groups and often isn't well documented or well reproduced. What do you think is a field we can all be doing to try to sort of float the industry? Well, so what we're starting to do is um, be willing to share our SOPs, our standing, standard operating procedures, and, we're, and you know, besides the various variabilities in equipment and so on, in my lab, it's, oh, if so-and-so makes the coding, it's great. If this person makes the coding, it's lousy, right? So you have that thrown into the mix as well, besides the, the foibles that come along with any university fab, right? So, um, but I, I think that um, what I'm finding just... In, ter in terms for, the, for my own efficiency of producing devices uh, is that we, we need to have our, our standard operating procedures that graduate students follow, right? And so it's making the thin film coatings is not an end in itself, right? So it's just a tool so that we can put them in an animal so that we can do the research or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm quite keen on, uh, in the first place, uh, you know, providing uh, good standing operating procedures. Um, besides that, um, you know, <coughs> I'm not sure what you do. Um, maybe labs can be encouraged to swap samples and, and examine each other's samples, things like that. Um, but uh, I'm open to suggestions on that from, uh, from Vanessa and Tom. I think it's, the problem is that publish and perish Thing. You need certain amount of publications that you get promoted or tenured or, or whatever. And therefore, people don't want to listen to you, for example, if you say, you know that it works really well, you have to clean your machine for five hours. This is something that nobody wants to hear because that would mean 
um, that your whole day is screwed up just by cleaning and cleaning a machine doesn't give you any publication. But you, ha you have to, <laughs> and that gives you the final devices. And in, right. uh, if, if you, if you uh, probably that's too hard to say, but if you know that you cheated a little bit and that your yield is 10% and not the 70% that you always present on conferences, um, you, you don't want to share so many samples because you don't have them. And if you share them, another lab might find out that, um, or you see something that you have actively ignored while writing your last paper. Yeah. So, so um, I don't don't give you examples because then you would know the names. <laughs> But, but there is that tendency that you have to be fast. You have to be the first one. If you make a paper about, about failure modes, you don't get it published, right? And if you make a paper about testing methods, you get at best to the IEEE transaction with an impact factor between three and four. And then you're really a hero. Um, but if you want to get tenured, you have to go to advanced materials. You have to go to science and to nature. And these are not the journals who are happy to publish um, work that is about soak tests of yield. five years and yield. I think, right, the underlying uh, like message here is the manufacturing and, and that, especially with microfab, what made the, ex the uh, yeah, experience at Livermore, I think, unique for me was that we weren't, luckily, we weren't driven by this need to publish mm -hmm. something cutting edge. Instead, like I said, we really focused on reliability because we were funded to provide a platform technology across many universities, many different kinds of animals, STEM, record. We had like every design. It, it was really fun to make something that had to work, not multiple times because also, when I, when I joined, like, people didn't really know who we were, so we had to build a reputation. So if we're sending devices out and they're constantly failing, it would have been really hard for us to build. So um, sending things mm -hmm. out worked really mattered. So I think that's, that's one, one option is where you have a facility or a group who it's their full-time job to be working on reliable products, not trying to push the edge and, and make a publication and it's grad students who are needing to learn something new with each year. Uh, also the testing too, that's involved and required. I mean, I'd say even at, at a, a government lab, the having a long-term testing and being able to do something multiple times was, it was also difficult. So I can only imagine at a university how, how difficult that is. So I think there is, there are a lot more discussions on this huge gap between research and commercialization that everyone in neurotech is recognizing, especially because they think a lot of R&D is microfab and there's none in commercial, in the commercial space. So why is that? How are we ever gonna move um, the, the med device industry beyond incremental steps if we can't do like 10% of the things we're doing in R&D, which is what's pushing the technology. And so I think these new ideas of an institutionalized way to think about tech development, uh, there was a, an article out by Adam Marlston and, and another um, mm -hmm. author on day one project recommending what they call called a focused research org. So it's kind of taking the best of startups, government labs, research institutes and academia, and then um, creating some kind of government funded system to help 
this kind of technology. It's like, I like totally resonated with what I've been thinking based on my experience from a government lab and the startup, like that startup environment was almost perfect. You have everyone under one roof with one agenda with all the resources that you need, which is not common for most startups, but that's still also like, how do you replicate that? So more people can um, be creating and developing and have a chance to uh, move the technology. Can you speak a little bit to what it's like, just in generalities, of course, like what it's like to do some of the same work in a national lab environment versus in a startup environment? Where do you think, where is it, where is it easier to do what? What are the, some of the pros and cons? A big difference that I saw was, at, at least in our particular group at the government lab, we were still one component of a bigger system. So we were building BCIs as part of, for example, a DARPA program. You have clinicians at one university or one um, hospital or multiple hospitals. We had chip designers at another university. We had uh, cables being made uh, by, a, by a med company. So we, and it was also only funded for, I mean, only four years is a long time for, for academic funding. And it was a lot for academic funding, but still you can feel that there, there's, there's a rush to make the device, but it's counter against the agenda of all the teams that are involved. Everyone is at a different institution. They're only working on this part-time. A lot of them rely on a couple of years of funding. So they want to get enough data thinking about how to use this data for their next funding, rather than how do we build this device that we signed up for and fully thinking about that. So the agenda, and it's not their fault, the incentives are just not right for that kind of system. So I felt, I feel like, when we switched to the startup environment in this particular startup, it was all under one roof. Again, it's a very, I think, unusual environment, everything about it, you know, the funding that we started with as a huge, huge factor in how we operated was to be able to start with such a large funding. You can start from um, first principles approach. So a lot of places, like a lot of startups will say, okay, we're gonna make a biomed device. That's super expensive. What are the materials that are already approved by the FDA? Let's start with that five. Well, when you start from that point of view, you're already going to make an incremental step because you're starting with the same five materials that everybody else is starting with. But if you're in a position where you have a long runway, you can say, and if it's led by, if, if the leadership is really emphasizing tech and engineering, how do we how do we solve this from an engineering point of view? That's, that's interesting that you say that because um, first principles approaches in biology, uh, sometimes they're phenomenally successful because they disregard a lot of uh, kind of tribal lore that tends to accumulate in biology. But sometimes they're remarkable failures um, because of essentially biological systems have many, many parameters uh, and and many of those parameters are not well characterized. And so the, the successful approaches have tended to be empirical. Um, and it'd be interesting if you could kind of speak a little to, you know, what, what it's like to try to rethink B- BCI based on first principles. I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it for every startup. <laughs> like, I think there are practical questions that, that a biomed or medical device company, you know, starting with the market size, with reimbursement codes, um, the indication, you know, how much the cost of manufacturing, how much is this going to, costs is it are people going to be willing to pay for that those are 
things that are don't really fall under first principles engineering thought. Um, but because if we're, if we're just looking at the engineering bubble, because we were able to, we're allowed to think that way, we looked at the problem, like, are, is it true? We literally started with, can, can we interact with 83 billion neurons? Can we have 83 billion electrodes, for example? And then you start from that assumption and like pare it down based on um, either physics and then eventually through like practical reasons. But I think it was freeing in the sense that you're allowed to think about the problem, like how do you really solve the um, insulation problem? What, you know, driven to that, what material could you use if you're okay with going through the FDA process? And, uh, it, but even that, it's still, it's still all like, we haven't solved, I wouldn't say things have been solved, but, um, and it can take a little longer actually when you do this approach. But in the end, the hope is that when you do come out, it's something that is uh, steps above what others are doing. And hopefully it brings up others. That, that's really my hope is that mm-hmm. what, what I said is most startups will say, okay, what are the five things that are already approved? Well, I'm hoping that companies like, like Neuralink and others who are willing, who have the money and capability to add more materials to that will now lower the barrier for all the other neurotech companies to jump in and start at that, that uh, next level rather than have to stick with, say, silicones <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 Neuralink can afford quite a vision, right? So, I mean, there's really a remarkable vision there. So, um, it's an interesting. Uh, Stuart and Thomas, I'm curious, you know, with uh, increasing interest and increasing kind of exposure, you know, for the BCI community and a number of startups popping up. Has that changed the way that you think about your programs? Has that put, directed you in any sort of different ways? Or do you feel like they're doing their thing and you're doing your thing? No, it's made me a little bit more anxious to stake a claim on technology, not IP. But just now I'm thinking, well, I should this is really good. We should publish this soon. I would hate someone else to beat us to it. <laughs> you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. But beyond that, um, beyond that, no, um, it, it, um, it, it really. Same to me. So it hasn't changed a lot. Um, and I believe it's, it's, it's a, you, you give and you take, you know, um, we, we don't know what the future brings. I, I mean, if you, if you look in the field of retinal vision prosthesis, that was a field where a lot of groups and even some companies then thought, this is awesome. You know, you don't have to open the skull. You just go into the eye and, and you do a retinal vision prosthesis. That was, was second sight or is second sight in the US that was retinal implant in Germany and they, they both had a medical device approval and then a lot of patients got implanted. The, the device was at a high maturity level. Um, and then it came out that the disease as such is not so well understood that you can really, that patients can really benefit from the implants. But that was possible only because those implants reached that high level of maturity. And I think this will happen in some other diseases. That's painful. I really believed in that. 
that stuff, you know? And, and now it's bounced back to academia, um, to neurophysiology labs, uh, to graduate schools, that, that you look deeper into the mechanisms. And I strongly believe that will happen in some BCI groups that might happen in bioelectronics medicine, that you come to a point where you can go to patients and then you find out, oh, that hypothesis about this disease is different. And that would mean be a drawback to, to that device, but, but it, it helps the whole field to learn more, make better devices, better therapies, better treatment options. But, but this is probably sometimes something where I look differently on that field. You know, that I know there will be backlashes and, and pitfalls, but that it helps to, to get to the next level. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the second sight thing is sort of a, is funny. I mean, maybe we've learned a couple of lessons there. Right? So the second sight approach was to use fairly traditional technology. Right? And really their target and what they were hoping to get out of their target really needed technology that was much more fine scale than, than they were developing. And so perhaps, you know, with some of the... Uh, more refined, actually thin film approaches that are uh, coming perhaps out of Stanford, uh, for, for example, will improve a great deal our ability to provide artificial vision by retinal stimulation. But, but, but suppose that's one lesson. But I think another lesson uh, which sort of gets more into the medical details with second sight is just the target, right? So, and, and, and the disease was retinitis pigmentosa, right? So, I mean, you know, two to 4,000 people a year in, in, in the United States, maybe, uh, you know, un, unsustainable market unless you have significant funds, right? But the, but the point I want to make is they were also targeting an organ that was horribly diseased, hopelessly disorganized, there was Mueller cell proliferation and all sorts of things going on. They were, and, and this was progressive, right? And so they were targeting uh, tissue that was becoming progressively worse. And, you know, so, so maybe what we should learn from this is we should not be targeting what's, you know, what's bad, right? I mean, uh, for an aside, but we should be targeting somewhere in the uh, stream where we have healthy tissue, unless of course the thing is we need to inhibit the uh, the tissue that's that's diseased, then that's a different story. But so I mean I, I think second sight. I mean that was writing on the wall, been on the wall for fifteen years, and that's was was not going anywhere. At least not very easy. Not very. I see we're getting close uh, close to the end, and I, I could probably just pick your brains about material stuff for another hour. But I wanted to get a chance to, um, in closing, get a few of your thoughts on one of the podcasts that we're going to do next, which is on the ethics of BCI. And um, as BCI practitioners, um, do you have any thoughts, thoughts, suggestions, questions? Um, what would you want to ask uh, an ethicist who specializes in neuroethics? Or what, what concerns would you like to raise about the future of the field? Well, one thing where I'm playing here the traveling salesman in my environment is from the ethical point of view, do not raise misleading expectations. I think that's very important, especially for those who have fatal diseases who look for, for every option. 
and and this is sometimes difficult for persons who are really excited about their research might it be an engineer a material scientist a neuroscientist so so that you stay responsible um, in your statements well knowing that the others uh, read something in between the lines that you've never said mm -hmm. and and I would ask that question if you're in that ethics field how can you um, balance that out you know you have to say some some really things for the futures you pro have to promise a lot to get the funding on the other hand you should not promise too much to raise expectations in persons who have definitely a strong need in getting something and how to do that and how and and it, it's not a question but i would would wish that more persons feel involved in that even if they only make helical cables or plugs or <laughs> stir <laughs> silicone rubber uh, that we yeah. all feel our responsibility that we contribute to that and should communicate that in, in, in yeah. a correct and honest way yeah. yeah you know it's an interesting question to ask what motivates participants in uh, first in human trials, right? And, and so, you know, one of the things that we've been doing with the cortical vision prosthesis, not me specifically, but with our ethicist slash psychologist is trying to understand that. And and you really have to, where, well, where I believe that they're, what they now think is that these early participants really have to be motivated by altruism uh, and that they have to have no expectation of any improvements um, in their in their disease, um, but just more broadly, right? You ask an ethical question, I and mean, we want to have uh, BCIs that um, interface with our brains to treat disease. But we, at some point, we're going to get to uh, a, a position in which it can be augmentive rather than just a treatment right and so when do we or how do we decide is our brain machine interfaces to augment <clears throat> capabilities when does that become a uh, when do we cross an ethical uh barrier yeah i'm curious i don't know if this is already being answered in the medical field for in other applications but how much does the patient have um, a say in whether they get a device implanted or not, a patient or someone that speaks for them. So say it kind of relates to what Thomas was saying, say there's a company that's touting um, really great things about their device and which has gotten the patients like, really excited and interested, but there's a lot of questions by experts on mm. that. Like when does a patient have that right to say, no, I want it versus- yeah. Yeah. Are you talking clinical trial now, or are you talking as a product, approved, approved device? As a yeah, I guess any any brain implant, like whether mm -hmm. clinical trial or product, like can they demand it, and is it the patient's right, or someone going to protect? You think potentially demand it even outside of a, a clinical trial or a, a regulatory approval, as under like a humanitarian need or something like that? I, I was thinking even like even as a product, if it's available. Mm -hmm. And maybe people don't think it'll be useful for that person, but that person is just so sold by all the advertisement that, no, I want yeah. it. 
Yeah. Me, yeah. Even if people say, well, you, you, like, it's mm -hmm. probably not safe. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I think the Dobell uh, cortical vision prosthesis was a little bit like that. You know, they uh, left the United States, went to Portugal, and I don't know, there's about 10 or 12, something like people were uh, implanted with uh, electrodes on the surface of the brain. And, and it, it was really, you know, a disaster, right? It was a disaster for the, for the participants. Uh, and um, I don't know. But, but actually, now, now that I uh, think about that, there is a uh, very good, a very interesting, I should say, not good, very interesting book written by someone called Jens Nauman. Jens Nauman. I think it's called In Search of Paradise. And he was a Dobell implant recipient. And you learn a lot from reading that book, uh, not only about about a lot of things, about what does motivate a subject and how even just looking at a face and seeing a couple of spots of light and knowing those spots of light where your child's face, how rewarding that was. Um, but you also learn that, you know, false expectations or unrealistic expectations build uh very quickly. And then you also learn that in this book, anyway, that the subject or the participant of the trial, they have their own agenda as well, right? And you get into, to, 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 it does get to be very tricky. But if anybody's interested, I would really recommend uh, a read. Uh, well, we'll put a link up to that book all through the conversation. Every paper or every researcher we've referenced will have a link uh, that the audience can follow along. So I, maybe just to end things on a positive note, um, I'd be curious to know what each of you are most excited about in the you know five to ten year horizon. Um, what do you, what do you expect to see that may not be obvious to people who are uh, listening to this podcast today? Mine's pretty boring. I'm just <laughs> just seeing how much neurotech has become a thing over the last even five years, and I. There's um, somebody I work with uh, that said recently he was going to buy a laptop and the kid who was selling the laptop, or probably teenager or college student, not kid, but um, <laughs> said, oh, what, what do you do for work? And he said, I make brain implants. And his response was, oh, like Elon Musk? That's, I don't think these laptops can do that. But the point is that he, whenever I talked about brain implants in the past, like nobody knew what that was or cared, but now like, you know, random people know it. So the fact, I think we're, it's not only are more companies getting involved, which means we'll see a lot, both non-invasive, invasive, we'll see where the technology can really take us in the next five to 10 years. But we're also, I wasn't aware of really neuroscience stuff till I was in college, which is really embarrassing. But I think now people at a younger age are becoming familiar with this field, which is only, I think, good for the whole field, because we have, it's going to be many years before we solve a lot of these problems. Well, I mean, I, I don't know what particularly to expect in five years, but what I do think is that we are on the cusp because we have recognized a whole slew of problems with implementing uh, brain-machine interfaces. And we have emerging solutions, whether it be electrode coatings, whether it be wireless uh, transmission, whether it be whether it's electronics and right on the implant itself, all this is 
just sort of in, their, in, in a sort of a nascent stage. And I expect to see over the next five to ten years, as these technologies improve and as they come together, we will have some really remarkable devices really remarkable devices in a decade a decade from now whether they're going to be just used in neuroscience research or whether they're going to be used in subjects or in participants or in patients i don't know but they are going to be uh some pretty remarkable devices hopefully better connectors in the yeah. Oh, it's such good. Connect yeah. Everyone listening to this, uh, Vanessa's very interested in better connectors. Me too. Me too. Me too. <laughs> and cables. Um, I would be happy if, if we would see one or two um, applications in patients, really improved applications with novel technologies. At least one piece should be thin film polymer stuff, <laughs> not being... <laughs> cast or carved out of a big chunk or, or block of material, but really something with novel technologies. And I hope that at least one application will make it, that we don't fall into that Gardner's hype cycle trough of dissolution. Because like, like, you know, like, like the first wave of artificial intelligence in the 50s or 60s where people promised too much and then all the others stayed away and, and it took another 15 years to come back to that. So I really pray and, and hope that, that at least one application comes through. Mm. Well, I hope so too, Thomas. I, I feel confident that a few applications are going to come through on that timeline. We probably represent three of those companies on the forefront, just on this call, Neuralink, NeuroOne, and Paradromics. Pleasantly, pleasantly optimistic uh, that we're, we're turning that corner. It's a fun time to be in the field. Okay. Well, I, I actually have undergraduates waiting for me and they've been already delayed half. Okay. Well, thank you for taking the time. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. I had a wonderful time. Thank you, Matt. And uh, Vanessa, Thomas, thank you. And Lauren, thank you. And uh, it was... Yeah, I can't wait until real conferences exist again and we can all meet in a real pub. Yes, so that's uh, that's uh, something to uh, maybe we'll directly answer your questions then. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can, I can pin people down more easily. Thanks a lot. Thanks Take care, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Bye.